You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Hey, mental workers, welcome back. Today, I'm very excited to be sharing the microphone with Belinda Radnich, who is a psychologist who works for the federal government. And today, we will be talking to you about this feeling when you don't feel like client-facing work is for you, but you don't know what other options there are in the field of psychology and mental health more generally, and you're just tearing your hair out, you don't know what to do, you hate therapy, but you don't know what else is there. Belinda, Tell us who you are and why you're interested in talking about this topic. Hi. Um, well, my name is Belinda, obviously, and I really remember having this thought a lot in the early parts of my career. Um, and even more recently, you know, it's something that I have thought about a lot and as a result have done a lot of different roles, both really closely aligned to kind of client face-to-face work and ones that are more far away from it. Um, so I think it's something that's really worth talking about rather than just stuffing that feeling down or, or panicking about it. It's worth talking about what the options are outside of therapy. And I'm really excited to talk to Belinda because in this episode, we're going to talk about some of those different things that Belinda has done, as well as kind of differentiate between imposter syndrome. So this feeling that like, oh, maybe like I'm the imposter, people are going to find me out. I'm not actually good enough to do therapy versus this. I actually don't think it's working for me and kind of what to do with that. We'll also be talking about different career options, really paying attention to that feeling. If you do not feel therapy is working for you, what else is out there? There's lots of stuff, but we just kind of don't know about it. And I agree with Belinda that this is a really interesting topic and quite relevant because I've certainly encountered it and pretty much everybody who I've talked to has also encountered it as well. We just never give it a voice. So in this episode, we'll be taking a practical, reassuring tone, but we'll be giving you some encouragement to explore and identify possible pathways. So Belinda, tell us about what you've observed about this feeling like, do I ever, do I even want to see clients? What are my career options? So you've observed it in yourself. Have you also observed it in other people as well? I have absolutely observed it in other people. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had conversations with people many times over the years, you know, both peers kind of in our early years and, um, other people who I've encountered, you know, who are starting their career and their internship, um, where those moments come and you go, oh, this is really overwhelming or this is really stressful or I've had a really crappy day or a crappy week or a crappy month um, and it's just not fun or satisfying or fulfilling and do I really actually want to do this? And that question of, oh, maybe I've made a terrible decision and this isn't the career for me. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure placed on us as well because of the how long it takes to become a psychologist and I guess a mental health professional as well. It's like you spend four years in your undergrad, then you usually do an honours and then you might do a master's or a four plus two or five plus one pathway. And when you actually get to facing clients, it's like, this is what you've been building up for. This is what I sacrificed all these years for. (laughs) And so when you get to that point and it's like, oh crap, maybe therapy is not for me, it can feel a little overwhelming. Oh, absolutely. Because it's a huge commitment. Yeah. It's a huge commitment and it's a huge investment in something where there is no try before you buy. There's no work experience. <laughs> you know, you don't get to sit down with a client and try out being a therapist until you're really, really, really far into it. And, you know, we wouldn't expect people to spend I don't know, six years studying the theory of hockey before they ever play a game and then ask yes. them to 
to commit to a career as a hockey player. So true. So <laughs> we're asking a lot of ourselves to commit to a career as a therapist, you know, without that real world experience. So I think it's important to know that it's okay to question it. At some yeah, point. I was going to say like, so if I'm feeling this and I'm a listener who is resonating very strongly with this, am I a freak? Like, you know, should, am I abnormal for thinking <laughs> this? You are so normal. You are so normal. Um, so normal because you can't know until you get there. And so normal because it's really hard. You know, we, I hope that people talk about it with their supervisors in their training. I don't know. Um, but it's a really hard job and it's a really anxiety fueled job. And we have this very, very intense kind of training pathway, but you still, you get through your training and you're not prepared for everything that's going to walk through the door. Um, so you're yeah, speaking for myself and, and for other people that I've talked to over the years. I had lots of moments where I was like, oh my God, I don't feel like I'm very good at this because I haven't had a good day or I haven't had a good session. And I don't know if this is a good fit for me. And it took, you know, being realistic about it, it probably took a few years, by few, I mean three or four or five years <laughs> before I really felt comfortable with the things I was competent in and really comfortable with the things I wasn't competent in because I had really high expectations of myself to be able to go and do everything once I started working <laughs> and, you know, being comfortable with saying no and turning clients away or setting boundaries around the people that I saw, that was hard, you know, to, to be comfortable with the fact that I wasn't good at everything or I didn't have those skills. And not feeling skillful, I think, is a really good motivator to run away from something. <laughs> it totally is. So like sometimes, I mean, this leads us into this idea that sometimes when we're having this thought, it's an anxiety fueled thought. And when we have anxiety, the temptation is to run away. Um, but as you're saying, like it could actually take around four or five, maybe even more years to kind of feel competent day to day. But when we don't have that, we know that, I mean, we see it even in our clients and in ourselves. It's like, yeah. when you don't have that sense of mastery over your role. It can feel like so debilitating and just so awful um, in mm. yourself. So let's maybe get stuck into that differentiation between imposter syndrome versus mm -hmm. I don't actually think this is working for me. With imposter syndrome, I kind of see it as a mismatch between your actual competence and then how you feel about yourself you're not kind of mm -hmm. like meshing the two together what do you think of imposter syndrome what is it to you I mean I think healthy self-doubt is normal particularly in a helping profession where you want to be perfect and you want to be on it and you want to be doing a great job yes <laughs> um, nobody comes in I don't think going oh, I want to be a bit of a slapdash <laughs> yeah. <a> psychologist <laughs> um, so I do think it is a normal thing and because we don't get a lot of immediate feedback, yes. you know, you don't have a client saying, you did great therapy today, very often. Um, and nobody sees us doing our work. So, you know, we don't get a lot of that feedback. So it's really easy for that self-doubt to grow and grow and grow, particularly if you do have tough sessions or tough experiences or clients where you're not moving as fast as you want to be moving. Things don't work in real life the way they work in the manual. You know, you don't go from week to week, topic to topic, and in, you know, eight sessions, they're done or whatever. So I do think it's really important if you're having that question in your mind of am I any good at this do I really want to see clients am I you know am I not really doing a good job am I an imposter to one take it to supervision 
and hopefully you've got a supervisor who you can talk to in a really vulnerable way and be really open and honest about it to talk it through with somebody who has a bit of distance but also knows you really well. Um, And I do think there's a lot of benefit as well in, you know, recording your sessions if you've got consent to do that so that you can get more of that direct feedback to build your confidence to have somebody you trust say, actually, you did do that really well and this is what therapy is like for me too and, you know, sometimes it is slow going or sometimes you say the wrong thing and this is how you recover or whatever it is, you know, and thinking about why is it that I'm having these thoughts and then doing something, you know, focused on it rather than running away from it, just to test out, can this improve? You know, And I mean, this is stuff we do with clients all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's really like what I'm hearing is it's really taking a growth mindset to it and be like, I am learning rather than I am a bad therapist. And you're right with supervision. Like I, I had supervision yesterday and I was literally like to my supervisor, Hey, I did this. Was this okay? And she was like, yeah, you did a great job. And I was like, you know, my heart is warmed. I feel good. And it's good just to kind of check those things against somebody who is more experienced and knows what it's supposed to look like, because you're right. Like in sessions, it's like things can go awry. Things uh, like, I don't know how many sessions I've had that's gone exactly according to the protocol but it would be a handful of times yep and so I I feel like I do need that reassurance that I'm on the right track and I'm not doing things that I don't know are kind of ineffective or not working as well and to hear that from a supervisor to be like no you're on the right track it's okay like try this differently next time uh like one or two things and I'm like oh great I can do that you know that's within my competence so I feel like it really helps to stave off those imposter syndrome kind of feelings Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I don't want to get too off track here, but one of the things that's useful to remember if you are doubting yourself is that you can take those, those problems or those mistakes or those issues to supervision. And maybe the answer is going to be actually, no, you didn't do a great job, Mm. but Hey, look, you've got a great instinct about the fact that that wasn't great. (laughs) And that's where we move from, right? You knew that that wasn't quite the right thing, but you weren't sure what to do cool, no worries, because your instinct there was absolutely bang on. And now we can build the skill from that. Like you were saying before, we don't go into this job being like, I'm going to be a mediocre psychologist. I'm just going to be like plain Jane, nothing's going to be great. We try and do our best. And we usually come into therapy with those kind of essential ingredients of care, empathic concern, uh, positive regard, non-judgment, that kind of stuff. And so if we do things a bit clumsily on top of that, there's always things that can be approved. Again, in my supervision yesterday, it's like I got one win and then the other one was like, I kind of fuddled up like two techniques and merged them into one in the moment. And it wasn't clear what the hell I was doing. And I was like, oh, okay, I see my mistake there. I'll try and separate them in the future. (laughs) And, but it was really nice to be able to recognize that in the context of a safe supervision environment. And again, I think that helps with the imposter syndrome feelings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess that's the first thing that I think if you're having these doubts, if you're wondering if you want to see clients, go and take it to supervision Yeah, and, and see where you get to and give it some time and give yourself some grace to learn and grow and and improve past that. Um, But also consider what your workload looks like, what your balance looks like. You don't have to be doing six clients a day, five days a week, right at the start, (laughs) particularly if you're feeling really anxious and overwhelmed by it. You know, that growth curve and that learning curve maybe can be a bit slower you know you can do two days or three days or four days if that's what suits you to be able to balance out 
you know, those worries and that self-doubt that comes in that learning phase against, you know, the satisfaction and enjoyment that you get from, you know, from learning and growing and, and getting the wins as well. Um, so giving yourself, I guess, a little bit of time. If you do think, oh, this is something I really want to do, even though I have, you know, these questions or this self-doubt and, and try to play around with it, I suppose, to find what works for you. Um, and that's something I discovered really early on. You know, I went into my first job after the end of my internship of doing full-time face-to-face private practice and I burnt out really fast <laughs> and I went, oh God, I can't do this. You know, this is not for me. This is way too much. And I dropped down to four days and then I got a different job. <laughs> um, and even just that simple thing of playing with the amount of work that I was doing took away that feeling that I didn't want to see clients anymore because suddenly it was a much more manageable kind of workload to be, to be in that, you know, learning space. I think that's a really important point. And thank you for sharing that with us, Linda, because it is like sometimes we can have this thought like therapy isn't for me, but it might actually be uh, a consequence of having too much work. And we're just like, okay, nah, I've got to take this all out rather than being like, how about I take a step back and just see whether that that feeling is actually about me not wanting to see clients or whether I've just burnt out and I've got too much work on my plate and I'm trying to meet an expectation that actually I don't have to meet, like it's all right. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you can be really flexible with your career. Um, You don't have to stick to one thing five days a week for the next 50 years. Yeah. So maybe it's boring. No, yeah, it kind of does. It does, doesn't it? Um, Maybe that's a good good segue into like, well, what if it actually isn't for us? We're just like, oh God, like I thought I'd be good with therapy and I thought I would enjoy this line of work. But, you know, honestly, it's just not for me. What do we do if we've taken it to supervision and we're just like, yeah, nah. Yep. What do you want to do? You know, the world is your oyster. Um, not everything is is going to be a practical option, right? If you want to be a pop star, you might not be able to achieve <laughs> that just because you want to. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's it's absolutely okay to think about, well, do I want to stay in mental health? And if I do, you know, how close to therapy do I want to be? A really logical sidestep is to just go and do assessment work. If you like doing assessments, you can have a very satisfying, busy, I mean, the wait lists here, I don't know about everywhere, but probably in most no, places, they're pretty the wait lists are long. As well. yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you love doing assessment, but you don't want to do therapy and intervention, go do that instead. Um, if you don't want to work in private practice, the community sector and the not-for-profit sector is always, you know, a really, really great option where they are crying out for people with understanding of mental health, with people skills. We don't necessarily have to be doing therapy or your work with clients might be, you know, running activities or supporting groups rather than one-on-one and, and, you know, you can be very closely aligned with your skills and still using that huge well of knowledge without doing therapy and without doing intervention, or you can go really far away. You know, you can work in organizational world where again, you're using a lot of knowledge, but in a completely different way and from a completely different direction, or you can go and retrain. And lots of people I know have gone and gotten a second degree or, you know, a master's in something else. I have a master's in public health because it sounded really interesting (laughs) and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it probably more than my psych degree in a lot of ways. Um, I totally hear you on that. Like 
just this semester I'm starting a grad cert in sexology and, oh, I was, fabulous. I know, and I was just like okay like I'm interested in this I've been thinking about it for a few years so I'm gonna go do it sort of thing yeah um so like following your interests Yes. Um, and that could take you, you know, I can't prescribe what direction that'll take you in because it can take you in so many different directions. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. Um, but it can take you lots of places. So, you know, I really crave variety in my work and, um, you know, I went and did my master's of public health because health interests me in a, in a more general space. And I discovered after working you know, in the treatment end, which is what we call tertiary intervention, (laughs) that actually prevention really is is way more exciting (laughs) to me than treatment in a lot of ways. And I enjoy seeing clients and I enjoy working with clients, but I want to be able to, you know, hopefully make myself redundant in the long run (laughs) by getting rid of the need for people to get treatment by creating, you know, a world that is a little bit more healthy. So for me, public health made a lot more sense to go and explore what else can we be doing further upstream? And that's what works for me. And you might want to go and do nutrition, but yeah, (laughs) you know, I don't know if you, if you know the answer to this, but it's like, how did you back yourself to be able to be able to explore these? Like in myself, I feel fear. I'm like, oh, but what if I try this and try that? And then suddenly a year and a half is gone. Even if I give them six months and I still don't know what I want to do. Like, how do you actually back yourself to be able to be like, look, I'm just going to give it a go and take small steps. And how do you know if you don't really like something? This is really confusing, but like, (laughs) do you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm a very practical person. So what pops into my head when you say that is, well, the time's going to pass anyway. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> if you take six months to try something else and it doesn't work out, well, you've had six months of trying something new and discovering that it doesn't work, or you've had six months being miserable doing what you were doing anyway. Very true. So well, what are you going to lose? Yeah, pick your poison. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that might not be helpful to everybody. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing is that you backed yourself when you were, you know, 18 or 19 or 17 or whatever, when you went and you chose this way back when. Yeah. And you committed a lot to it. So you've proven that you can do something really hard. Yeah. Why would now be any different to go and try something not knowing what it's going to be like? Now you have a lot more wisdom and insight into what works for you and what doesn't. Um, now you know what is and isn't going to be satisfying or fulfilling. So you're coming at it with a bit more knowledge and a bit more experience. And that's going to mean it's probably not going to take six or seven or eight years to figure out that it doesn't work for you. <laughs> so why not take the leap? You've already taken a leap by getting this far in one career. A little sidestep into something else is no greater or smaller a leap. It's just at a different time. We say to kids, just go to uni and try something. Try a few courses, see what you like. And then once you finish uni, oh, okay, you're not allowed to try anything anymore. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. (laughs) No, absolutely. What would you say to like the people in the back who are kind of like, oh, but I've wasted all my time like in psychology. What are some of the transferable skills you see like in mental health that would be applicable in other areas? I don't think any higher education is a waste of time. I suppose it depends how much you got out of it. (laughs) Not everybody's a great student, but um, I don't think it's a waste of time. You've got obviously all of your practical academic skills, right? Reading, writing, critical thinking. Um, We can churn out essays like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. 
all of that scientific knowledge, you know, being able to understand what it means to be evidence-based and being able to read in a scientifically literate way and evaluate what you're looking at. All of those are really, really valuable skills, no matter where you're working and no matter what you're doing. You've also got, hopefully, some people skills and some understanding of people um, and that ability to kind of think a little bit more broadly about what you're seeing or what you're hearing and what somebody's saying or what somebody's doing. And certainly, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find a job that doesn't involve people in some way, shape or form. Yeah, exactly. Um, And if you've been drawn to psychology or to therapy, you probably are still drawn to people-based stuff right? You're not going to be so far away that you're not going to be able to use those skills. And obviously you've got this huge amount of knowledge about the mind and the brain and relationships um, and well-being and stuff like that, which which is very, very transferable in lots of different industries. So I find that very reassuring to hear. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like it's not a waste of time. We can try out stuff. We can mm-hmm. we can give ourselves permission to be like, hey, I've got an interest in something else. Like let's give yeah. it a shot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I in my kind of explorations of different options have spent a lot of time on seek and on ethical jobs and you know talking to people and um hearing about what other people do yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and something which I believe really strongly is that if you look at you know a job ad or if you look at an organization's website and you think oh maybe I could do that or that sounds interesting or I don't know everything that I would need to know to do that but maybe I know enough to give it a red hot go, call or apply and just, you know, put yourself out there a little bit. Um, I had a job teaching sex ed for cool. a while, which is my favourite job that I've ever had. Ah. <laughs> um, my absolute favourite job. Maybe that you I've should ever be had. doing the grad cert in sexology. Well, maybe. <laughs> I, you said it. I'm like, oh, that does sound really interesting. <laughs> so you did the um, sex ed job. I did a sex ed job and I loved it. And the only reason I left is because we had to move into state. Yeah. Um, otherwise I would probably still be there. And, you know, they weren't advertising for a psychologist. <laughs> you don't need a psychologist to do that job. They wanted a health professional, a nurse or a teacher. It's like, you know what? Part of my practice is around diverse gender and sexuality and exploring that in a really affirming way. So I know a bit about the gender stuff. I know a lot about relationships and healthy relationships and consent and bodily autonomy. So I can kind of do that. I know enough about the biological stuff and I can learn the rest. <laughs> so I'm going to apply and it really fit with my interest in, you know, preventative health and early intervention, you know educating young people to be healthy um, really, really fits in with that. It didn't draw on a huge amount of mental health and psychological stuff, but it did draw on some of it and it was a blast. Yeah, that's awesome. Absolute blast. And if I had had only stuck to those thoughts of, well, I can only do mental health jobs or I can only do jobs that are advertised for psychologists, I never would have applied and I would never would have discovered that it's absolutely hilarious and amazing fun teaching sex ed and making, you know, classrooms full of year threes giggle when you say penis and and all the rest (laughs) of it. (laughs) But it was something I was interested in and I saw it I was like, yeah, I'm going to give it a crack. And it was amazing. So it does it does pay off sometimes to take a chance 
<laughs> because if you know within yourself, hey, I can do 60% or 70% or 80% of that job and I can learn the rest, you're a good candidate. Absolutely. Yeah. And I do want to add to that because it's a very female thing as well. Like I think there's actually research which shows that, you know, you give um, a male and a female a job description and they've got equally uh, qualified like skills yeah. and qualifications and the female will be like, oh no, I don't, I don't meet that enough sort of thing. And the male will be like, oh, I'll give it a go. Yes. Um, so we do need to fight against that bias if you're a female identified person, because yeah, like you say, like if you think like you can do most of it and you can learn the rest, give it a shot. The only other thing I wanted to touch on with you today, Belinda, was we're going back to the imposter syndrome kind of theme. I just wanted to touch on this idea that sometimes like because of how long the psychology degree and usually how long it takes to get qualified in mental health, we might have this expectation of what therapy is. And a lot of us like we've kind of got two main uh, schemas in our profession. Like one is self-sacrifice and the other one is unrelenting standards and perfectionism. Yep. So when we get to therapy itself, one, we're like, I need to help this person no matter what. I need to bend over backwards and make sure I get results. And the perfectionist is like, oh, they definitely need to be helped. And yeah. so when we encounter like the reality of therapy, which is like people ain't having light bulb moments every session, people ain't moving, change is slow. Like you might have to repeat things again and again and again, depending on the person. Um, it can really like shatter us and that can mm. contribute to like feelings of self-doubt and actually be like, nah, therapy's not for me. Um, I just wondered whether you had experienced this yourself and like how you might've gotten through it. I have definitely experienced that myself. <laughs> I think it's something that I'm still working on in some ways. That sense of not knowing and not being good at things becomes more comfortable with time rather than less. And I don't know if I'm going to express this very well, but I don't think it's reasonable to ask so much of ourselves, right? Unrelenting yeah, standards are I not agree. a particularly helpful schema a lot of the time. Um, they'll get you through a degree for sure. But yeah, totally. <laughs> um, realistically speaking, if you want to be happy, um, not so helpful. For me, it's been a process of becoming more and more comfortable with that discomfort of of not being great at everything or of not having great experiences all the time, which conversely means you have more great experiences and you become more comfortable. Yeah. More confident. Um, it, it's, it's that shifting um, scales, I guess, from one end to the other. But I think as you take a bit of pressure off yourself, you create space to get better and to grow. I really am not very um, expressing this very well. I thought you were trying to say. Lovely. Yeah, <laughs> I really you. liked that. Yeah, because <laughs> I feel like that I have this, I'm not too much of a self-sacrificer, but I definitely with the unrelenting standards, mm. huge perfectionist, put a lot of pressure on myself. You're right, very adaptive until it leads you to burnout. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're right, it actually doesn't give you space to grow because you're so rigid in your expectations of yourself that you don't allow yourself to try different things because you're too scared that you're going to suck and mm. then you're going to feel mm. bad about yourself. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can probably think about it in terms of every session that you do where you feel uncomfortable or anxious, you, you're just giving yourself a bit of exposure therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and over time, that, that anxiety will reduce um, and your skills will grow. 
um, and you'll have less reason to be anxious and it'll all work out. Yeah, absolutely. And I do find like a few techniques in therapy kind of help me get through. So for instance, when I'm unsure about doing something with a client, like I'll try and appear confident, but I also just be like, let's give this a go. Like it's kind of I'm speaking to myself, but I'm also speaking to them. Like, let's give this a go. I think this will help, you know, it's well-intentioned, but like, you know, let's just see how we do this. And like, you let me know if this works for you or we can try a different approach. So yeah. I try and like if work even more collaboratively when I'm unsure um, and I make sure that I get that feedback from them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that really helps with your client buy-in. Yeah, totally. It's a great approach. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, so Linda, I reckon we're coming towards the end here, but I did just want to ask you, like, I'm curious to know, so you've said you've explored a lot of things in your career to date. Like, mm-hmm. do you expect to be in the same job for the next like 30 years or 40 years of your career? Like, you know, no, nah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really don't. I, I have the job that I have in government because we moved and it was a job and I hadn't done anything like it before. So I gave it a crack and it took me probably a solid three months to actually enjoy it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it when I started at all Yeah, because it wasn't quite what I expected from the job ad and it was a different environment and it was different sort of client population and not very much therapeutic work at all. Most of my work is assessments, which I enjoy. And I've really, I've learned to like it as I've understood it more and more deeply over time. And as I've gotten, you know, more skillful in the, you know, it's a very niche kind of um, skill set that you need for the, for the population that I work with. And I could see myself doing it for two or three or four years maybe, but I also see myself probably getting itchy feet within that time yeah, um, and wanting to go back maybe to something that is more therapeutic um, or go to something that pursues my other love, which is education and training and preventative health. Um, or maybe, you know, I'll go do that sexology degree, which sounds yeah. great. <laughs> and go sideways again. Yeah. yeah. Um, so no, no, I could see myself here for, for a few years, um, but probably not forever. In fact, yeah. definitely not forever, which I think is kind of exciting. It's exciting to exciting look ahead too. and see possibility. Yeah, because like, I mean, the takeaway that I get from that is that I reckon it's highly unlikely for anyone to be in exactly the same role for their whole career. And I think research backs that up. It's like previously, maybe two generations ago, it was you stay in the same job for your whole career. But I think on average, research shows that we're going to switch roles about seven times in our lifetime at least. Yeah. So to put the pressure on ourselves and be like, oh God, like I have to do this exact therapeutic role interview like intervention kind of role, it's kind of setting us up for, yes, I think it's just not realistic and it's okay Mm. to change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that will make you, if you do come back to a therapeutic role, probably a better therapist Yeah, with more life experience and more perspective than if you stayed just in your counselling room for 30 years. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Without living anywhere else in the world, without experiencing the modern workplace in different ways. You know, I think you can be more useful to clients when you do come to client work if you've done other things as well. I agree. Yeah. At the same time as well, like I think something else important from our conversation has been like, you know, it might take like four or five years to actually feel competent in what you do Mm. in therapy. Like, and 
Therapy is really hard. I find it a really challenging skill to do well. There is so much different presentations and I don't think people in the general population really understand this, but it's like, you know, if somebody comes into me with depression versus PTSD, like I have to have a completely different skill set. And it might also be having like comorbid things with the PTSD and they might Mm -hmm. have a difficult home situation and then have to prioritize and treatment plan and do risk assessments. And it's like, there's a huge amount of skill set in what we do. And it takes a while to actually acquire those skills and feel confident in them. So like with our like first half of our conversation, it's like, you know, if you're feeling this is probably normal, but it probably doesn't mean that you're not suited to therapy and like, yeah, go talk about it with your supervisor. Yep. And, and really, you know, I would so encourage people to just take the pressure off. You know, if you want to do therapy two days a week, do something else for the rest of the week. Yeah. So that those two days are really top-notch quality days. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you fill your cup in other ways for the rest of the week. And that's, that's fine. Linda, thank you so much for this enlightening discussion. I actually feel happier than when I first started speaking to you. So it must have been really good. I That's feel like good. <laughs> I feel reassured and hopefully the listeners will too. I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's it's music to my like perfectionist ears. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you so much. And I think, I think that's about it. Hey, listeners, like, I think that's a wrap. Like, and I just want to add something as well that, you know, in my show notes, listeners, I've got this kind of, you can buy me a coffee and it's a virtual coffee and you can pay five bucks and you can buy me a coffee online. And I just want to thank the person who actually did that last week. If you really like what you're hearing with the podcast and you want to support me, you can buy me a virtual coffee online. It's, it's, I'd really love it. And it means a lot to me because I don't actually drink coffee in my real life. So like, you know, if I can get a virtual coffee, that'd be really nice. Catch you next time, mental workers and take care. Bye. Hello, mental workers. I wanted to give a shout out to our patrons. Patrons are listeners of the podcast who have signed up to generously give about $2 a month to the podcast. They are Alan, Claire, Katerina, and Melissa. Thank you so much for clicking on the link, taking the time to sign up to Patreon, and then actually giving a damn about the podcast to give us some money every month. I really, from the bottom of my heart, really appreciate it. And it really goes to a good cause. I do not profit off the podcast and every cent that is donated by you directly goes back into putting episodes out into the world. If you would like to help keep the podcast alive, you can also join up as a patron. You would go to patreon.com slash mentalwork and you can join up for as little as $2 a month. As well as receiving a shout out on the podcast, you can also message me and request episodes that you would like to see me tackle and I will give it a red hot shot pronto. Again, that's patreon.com slash mentalwork. Thanks again to our patrons. It's a huge boost and couldn't do it without you. Catch up.